0: Hi, I'm Susan Glasser, staff writer for The New Yorker. I think it's wonderful that Diane has pivoted to podcasts because it allows her to go deeper and longer with an individual guest and to really sort of unpack more than you're able to do in a traditional radio segment. So I think it's a great format for an interviewer as skilled as Diane and it gets us to still have a connection with her. I know that Diane loves having you as a listener and if you feel so moved as to donate, it's easy to do. You just go to org. Hi, it's
1: Diane. On my mind, President Trump's madman theory approach to foreign policy. It was an idea first put forward by Richard Nixon. The thinking behind it was to let other countries believe the U.S. president is unpredictable, that egregious military action could be taken, and that that uncertainty would give the U.S. an upper hand. Fast forward nearly 50 years, and our current president prefers a similar method to governing. Although, according to CNN's Jim Sciutto, Unlike Nixon, Trump employs this approach both intentionally and not. Jim Sciutto is chief national security correspondent for CNN. His new book is titled, The Madman Theory, Trump Takes on the World. Jim, I want to start with a question about the vice presidential announcement yesterday of Kamala Harris. I wonder what role you believe she might be taking as far as foreign policy is
0: concerned. It's an interesting point because it has not been her focus, right, in terms of her experience. I mean, for instance, Joe Biden himself, of course, was chosen specifically by Obama to give him that heft on that side so so you might imagine that Joe Biden as the top of the ticket felt he didn't need that right the, the way Obama felt he did or even George W Bush did right with with the Dick Cheney going back to 2000 it would seem more for her chops from the senate which is not to say she doesn't have any experience there right her position uh, on some of these committees is still uh, indicative but but uh, it doesn't appear that he envisions her to have the same role as he himself had in the Obama administration
1: At the same time, he is 78 years old. He maybe is not going to do as much traveling as prior presidents have in terms of foreign policy connections. So, I would think she's going to have to get up to speed. What do you think?
0: I agree, and you're right because that is absolutely a role that, that often falls to the vice president, uh, traveling both for for meetings, summits, etc., but also some of the things the president doesn't necessarily want to do. And let's be frank, you know, given his age, uh, and she, assuming they win, would be a standard bearer for the party uh, going into into 2024. In which case you'd have to have the full picture, right? The full the four full portfolio of responsibilities.
1: Just generally speaking, what was your reaction to his choice?
0: Listen, all of us become prognosticators and betters to some degree as as this is coming forward, based to some degree on gut rather than direct knowledge. But, my view was that she, she was who I had my money on, right? You know, and I'm not alone in that because of, of course there was a lot of talk leading up to it, but that she she has advantages that some of the other candidates did not, right? I mean, she was fully vetted, had already run in this race, right? Gives you some, some confidence there. Fit the vice president's promise in effect, if, if not quite a hard promise, but strong indications that he wanted to pick a woman, a woman of color. And probably it struck me as an acknowledgement that he was preparing for the campaign as well as the office, right? You know, Because you had a lot of talk, of, uh, for instance, uh, with Hillary Clinton with Tim Kaine, oh, here's someone I could govern with, right? Or even Joe Biden would say Susan Rice, here's someone who is, who's ready immediately for, for government. Don't forget, there's still an election to come, right? A- and it, it's, it seems that he saw in Kamala Harris someone who could also fight well on the campaign trail. Um, and, and we'll see. I mean, you, you certainly saw in, the, in their first meeting together that she is willing to take her shots. You bet. We saw that, and Joe Biden himself knows that, right, from that early debate.
1: You write in your book that President Trump has fundamentally redefined the U.S. position in the world. What do you mean by that?
0: It's a number of things. I think the, the biggest one is the end of American exceptionalism, he has a fundamentally different view of America's role in the world than virtually all of his Democratic and Republican predecessors. He doesn't see the U.S. as that different from anyone. You know, you saw that very early on in his term with that interview with Bill O'Reilly, when Bill O'Reilly talking about Putin said, well, Putin's a killer. And the president answers, well, are we that much better? And even more recently, in the wake of the intelligence about Russian bounties on U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan and Russian arms sales to the Taliban in 2018. You know, two things meant to kill U.S. soldiers. And the president's response was, well, we sold weapons to the Taliban in the 80s. He doesn't, in his statements, in his convictions, but also in his policy moves, his consequential moves, see the U.S. as being anything else but a zero-sum player in a game. Everybody against everybody. Uh, whether an adversary or even an ally. So
1: how much attention do you think American voters are paying to foreign policy right now?
0: It's a very good question. I feel that the COVID outbreak is the, and it is, it's a domestic issue, but it's also a foreign policy issue because of course pandemics by nature are global issues, is the one that brings it home right to their doorstep because they can hold the Ukraine scandal at arm's length, right? It seems a million miles away. I mean, I I genuinely believe it affects our security and the security of our friends. But you you can imagine someone holding that at arm's length. They they might be able to hold even the dispute with China at arm's length. But here is an outbreak that might have taken away their job. Um, It is keeping their kids from going to school. You know, God forbid, keeping them from watching college football in, in the fall, right? And it's interesting, the outbreak was, was picking up just as I was finishing the manuscript for this book. So I went back to everyone I spoke to for the book. And by the way, it's only people who serve this president at the most senior level. Those, those are everybody I spoke to and, and by and large on the record with names attached. And I said, tell me how this outbreak, his response fits into the broader picture. And they said, it is a perfect encapsulation. And I try to do this in the final chapter, You see all the elements, minimize it, You know, this is not that big a deal. I got it under control. Politicize it. It is a political issue. If you're against my thinking on it, it's a democratic hoax. Demonize the experts, right? Just as he did intelligence analysts say on Russia, he's doing to the Fauci's of the world. But finally, hyper-personalize it. It is all about him. The policy is Trump and Trump is the policy. There's a great quote in the book from Fiona Hill, who, of course, was his top... Russia advisor and a witness in the impeachment, who who said that Trump has so personalized the presidency even more than Putin. You know, this student of Russia saying that Putinism allows for some delegation of authority. Trumpism more and more does not. Remarkable.
1: So in a sense, his response to foreign policy is precisely the same as his response to COVID he doesn't think it matters.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And if he calculates that he can't do anything about it, he just attempts to act like it doesn't exist. Right. And even politicize the data. Right. Because here's someone who raises questions. You know, we only have more infections because we're doing more testing. Oh, and by the way, did all those people really die from it? You know, it it is just as he politicized intelligence on a Russia or a North Korea, he will politicize the data, hard data that we know about a disease that's killing people in this country. It's, it's remarkable. And, and some people lap it up.
1: But Jim, he's still our president now. He could be for another four years. And you characterize his foreign policy approach as the madman theory. Now, explain that title, which is the title of your book and the subtitle, Trump Takes on the World.
0: So so the way I got to this point was in four years of covering Trump, but even going back to the campaign, he and his supporters sell this idea that, that Trump has this brilliant strategy, right, of keeping everybody off balance, surprising them at the last minute. He knows best and it always works out. Now, as I watched that play out, not just in, you know, the real estate market in New York, but with our most sensitive national security issues, it it, it reminded me of President Nixon, right, who claimed his own madman theory and famously communicated to the North Vietnamese during the war that he was just mad enough to launch a nuclear strike on them and had Kissinger deliver that message. Now, he wasn't, but he hoped it would give him leverage. Of course, it didn't work out. The strategy didn't work with regard to Vietnam. They didn't. They didn't budge. And we know how that war ended. But 50 years later, Trump comes in with a somewhat similar claim, but with very Trumpian unique qualities. One being, he's just as likely to unleash it on allies as adversaries. NATO allies. You know what? Screw you guys. You know, unless you pay more money. And by the way, do I really believe in this alliance? No, South Korea. Am I going to keep my troops there if you're not going to pay five times more? Or Canada, you're a national security threat, right, exercising that law to impose tariffs. Uh, and just one final element, he's also just as likely to unleash this on his own advisors, because I tell numerous stories in this book about how the president bypassed, contradicted, surprised his own most senior advisors, you know, unpredictable to them as well.
1: Give me the most important example of one of those advisors.
0: So Syria and the president, you know, bypassing, contradicting, overruling Jim Mattis, but, but not just Jim Mattis, everybody in his government on summarily withdrawing U.S. forces from Syria by tweet, which he did twice, actually, December 2018, and again in October 2019. And, and the deep upset within the government and out in the field among commanders about this, one, leaving our allies in the lurch. Two, though, undermining the mission of fighting and attacking ISIS. And what's interesting about it, this is another element of Trump's madman, right, is that there's, there's a paper tiger element to, to Trump and his projection of strength in that foreign leaders don't see him as strong. Erdogan took advantage of him in a phone call, getting him to pull those troops out. Putin doesn't see him as strong. He sees him as someone that he could mold. But his own advisors found ways to get around the president.
1: So. My question to you, the madman theory, do you really think he's mad?
0: I asked everyone I interviewed for this book that question, and no one said they believe that he's nuts. They describe this as just the way he is. This is the way he makes decisions. He feels he doesn't need information or intelligence or to read. His gut knows better. The people he talks to on the phone, whether they be Tucker Carlson or the Russian president, by the way, that their collective view of the world is more accurate. That plus my gut gets it right more than others. That he trusts his gut so much he'll make a decision on the fly. The feeling in the moment, that's the right decision. And by the way, another element is a constant mixing of his personal interests with national interests, or the personal interests trumping, the national interest. It's a consistent portrait. So, so his madness is not insanity. It's just, you know, there's an element of self-absorption and, and extreme confidence.
1: Extreme confidence, even though he has made some big mistakes. What do you think his biggest mistakes have been?
0: I would say the undermining the mission in Syria, which was a success it, by any other standard, right? A small footprint of U.S. forces there with a loyal local ally that he could have. And one of the people I interviewed for my book, who was senior in the administration under Mattis, said that this, he should have advertised this as one of the great successes of his um, administration and, and did not. I think also that finally standing up to China. On a whole host of malign activities, stealing intellectual property, violating trade agreements, etc., was was necessary and good. And I, personally, it's something I've covered for years because I lived in China, covered it, worked in China in the government for for a couple of years as well. Still, an open question on China, though, because we find ourselves now in a spiraling conflict with a uncertain outcome and no real endgame, it seems. I mean, there are people in this book who talk about war with China, Steve Bannon among them within five years. That's a remarkable uh, remarkable outcome uh, there. Um, and then the other, you know, it is true on NATO that he has gotten NATO allies to pay more for the alliance. And even the Secretary General of NATO will say uh, that's something that we needed. The trouble is it's joined with his undermining of, of the broader idea of what the alliance is, right? Which is allies protecting allies, democratic principles standing up to Russia and defending themselves, each other, when they go to war. That's something the president has left open to question. So, yeah, you might have gotten more money, but where does the alliance stand today?
1: It does seem to be an awful lot about money.
0: Yes. It is his most indelible metric on every front. Not just in terms of, say, paying money for force deployments, you know, in NATO allies or the South Koreans on the Korean Peninsula, but even a measure of a relationship. It's interesting. Folks who, who are studied in, in trade say that Trump can't get around the idea that, that any trade deficit is anything other but a loss for the country. If, if you're buying more from a country than they are from you, you are losing even when it makes sense in some circumstances. I mean, just an economist explained it to me, you know, think about it this way, you buy more from the grocery than they buy from you because you need the food from the grocery, but he can't get around that. And, and what's interesting is it, is it colors every relationship. Now, someone said, said to me again, one of his senior advisors, that in some ways his hostility towards allies is greater than that towards enemies, like a Xi, a Putin or a Kim because he feels that, well, we're giving our allies this money as he views it, so they owe us. They owe us more. And he has more hostility for them than the enemy. It's, it's, uh, but you see it in his public statements.
1: And what do you see as his greatest foreign policy failures?
0: North Korea, because it's so clear. One year of fire and fury, which, by the way, and I tell, recount this in this book, brought this country closer to war than we realize, a very bloody war and then three years of very personal summit diplomacy, and North Korea has more, not fewer, nuclear devices. It has a more advanced ballistic missile program. It has a greater capability to put a portable nuclear device on the tip of one of these missiles than they did before. So when he came in, President Obama famously said to him, North Korea is your most immediate, greatest national security threat. The president agreed. He focused on it. As he's ending four years, it is a greater threat. And, and that's a it's, it's a clear failure based on the record.
1: So, Jim, as you said earlier, you talked with only people who had served the president. People, as you said, like Fiona Hill and Peter Navarro and Steve Bannon. How did they assess his approach to Russia, for example?
0: I asked everyone to explain the president's deference to Russia, because it is arguably the most consistent feature of the president's forward policy, perhaps that and standing up to China, but two sides of the coin there, to explain it to me. And the best, most consistent description answer they could come up with was that the president inexplicably, and that's a word that one of his advisors use, admires Putin. He admires his power, he envies his power to some degree, but he also shares that nihilistic view of the world I was describing earlier. America, not exceptional. We're all dirty players in the same dirty game. That's Putin's view of the world. And Trump shares it in many respects. And um, the thing about that admiration that should be worrisome beyond the fact that it probably sounds different to you and me than the way, the way our, we believe our country is, is that Putin, US intelligence believes, knows that Trump admires him and works to take advantage of it and influence his view of the world to benefit Russia. Intel officials I spoke to for this book describe Putin as carrying out a massive influence operation, you know, which is a espionage term, on the president of the United States. Uh, one of his senior advisors said that Putin is Trump's honey trap. It's, it's, it's a remarkable view to get from inside uh, his own administration.
1: More of my conversation with Jim Chuto when we come back. My name's Nick
0: Hartigan. I listened to The Diane Reem Show for many decades, and now my son is listening with me to Diane Reem On My Mind. Makes me think of uh, when I listen to The Diane Reem Show with my mom. It takes a lot of work to produce a podcast like On My Mind. It gets made because of the members of WAMU. So if you love it, then you can support it. <laughs> you can make sure it keeps getting made and you keep hearing Diane on the air.
1: Make a donation at wamu.org. Now, here's the rest of my conversation with Jim Shudo. His new book is titled The Madman Theory, Trump Takes on the World. He's CNN's chief national security correspondent. What about the country's concerns about Putin and Russia and the upcoming election?
0: This is one of the headlines, Diane, that should be at the top of our minds every day. Four years after Russia interfered in in the election to benefit Trump, the view of US intelligence, but also bipartisan committees on the Hill, look at the Senate Intel Committee report There you have, Russia is doing the same again to benefit Trump. That's once again, the confident assessment of US intelligence. What's different now, right? The president never stood up to them and you have uh, really active, open participation in it by sitting members of Congress, right? You have Senator Ron Johnson and Devin Nunes in touch with a Ukrainian politician who we know has ties to Russia and who U.S. Intel believes is a conduit for Russian disinformation targeting Joe Biden, you know, right out of the 2016 playbook targeting Hillary Clinton. And there's participation. By the way, the president not saying one word in public or in private, based on the records of his conversations with Putin, to tell him not to do it. That's a remarkable, remarkable and, and shocking thing. And yet, you know, in, in the current environment where you hear 12 shocking things a day, it's hard to break through, but heck, it, it could very well influence the election.
1: What kinds of disinformation about Joe Biden and now Kamala Harris do you think we should? could expect from Russia
0: it, it appears that the focus uh, from this Ukrainian lawmaker and then if you look at what Ron Johnson and others are looking into is you know trying to find shady stuff about former vice president Biden uh, his son's involvement with Burisma the vice president's in, you know interactions with the former Ukrainian prosecutor these are all old stories i mean we, yeah. we know the facts we, we know right. the facts of the situation let's talk about the prosecutor for instance yes uh, the vice president supported changing the prosecutor in Ukraine, but so did our European allies because he wasn't prosecuting corruption. That's why. You could say that till you're blue in the face. And yet what, what happens, as you know, in our own country is there's so much domestically generated disinformation The president just keeps repeating the same lie about the vice president's involvement in this. I'm sure we're going to hear more of it in the next 80 some odd days. Do
1: you think they're going to go after different lines of attack since, in fact, as you said earlier, Ukraine's an old story. People aren't paying that much attention. They're looking more at what we're facing now, the COVID virus.
0: It's possible. It's possible, and, and you know, it's possible that they look at, uh, look at his son as well. So we should keep our eyes and ears open for it. I mean, the, the other aspect, right, is that on the question of foreign interference in the, in the election or foreign help for a campaign, what should be a pretty black and white, yes or no issue, bipartisan, shouldn't happen, right? is no longer. The president has said, what's wrong with taking foreign help? He said that in the Oval Office uh, to George Stephanopoulos. Bill Barr, whenever pressed on it, gives a sort of on-the-fence answer, well, if it's coming from foreign intelligence, you know, what does he mean exactly? Is there some you can take and some that you can't? By the way, they are taking it, uh, some sitting lawmakers. So that is yet one more thing you would think would be uh, a subject of agreement that's become a subject of partisan disagreement.
1: What about China? It's been said China is going to try to interfere to help Joe Biden.
0: Well, it's interesting. I got to say my, my spidey sense went up a little bit when I when I heard the announcement of that that intel assessment. Yes, it is true. And I've been told going back to 2016, that not only Russia attempts to interfere in our politics and election, but but China does, North Korea, Iran. You know, mostly that's by injecting themselves into the political discourse, you know, bots on, you know, Twitter and social media sharing disinformation, all that kind of stuff. But the fact is Russia's was far more pronounced in 2016. We know that. They stole DNC emails, and strategically released them uh, to undercut the DNC, the convention as it was happening. They stole John Podesta's emails and strategically released them, weaponized them. I I always remind people, the Podesta emails first dropped 22 minutes after the Access Hollywood tape. You know, it's, it's transparent. So again, you know, what we know, the most public form, beyond intervening in social media and bots, the most public form of Russian interference we see right now is is Russia supplying information or a Russian-backed politician from Ukraine supplying information targeting Joe Biden specifically. Now, it's possible that, that, that China is or Iran are gonna release some information about Donald Trump to weaken him or to help Joe Biden, but we haven't seen it. We certainly haven't seen it on the scale that we see Russia in 2016 and again in, in 2020. So it struck me as somewhat convenient <laughs> that those two assessments were, were um, released on, on the same day. That said, we do know that all those countries are attempting to work their way in somehow.
1: How do you see the president's current relationship with China?
0: It's dangerous, right? It has been ratcheted up significantly in the last several weeks on every front, in the business sphere, whether you think, you know, Huawei or TikTok, you know, but but also in other areas, you know, our, our military is getting closer to each other in key areas in and around China. And think, you know, think about Taiwan. And that's, that's dangerous, right? Because the question is, do you have a way to get out of a cycle of escalation? What's the end game? Are there off ramps? What's the short-term goal? Or is it just about confrontation for confrontation's sake? Because China is no wilting flower in this, right? They are increasingly emboldened. And you have a leader there in Xi Jinping who is, who is not shy about pushing and pushing and also reluctant to back down. That's where the political question comes in, is, is Trump ratcheting up the China rhetoric and standoff now for political benefit in November? And does he have the ability or the strategy to walk it back somewhat after the election to avoid a war? It's an open question.
1: Do you see any attempt before the election to take this country into war?
0: It's interesting. Another consistent description of this president, as much as he likes to brag about military power, my nuclear button is bigger than yours, Mr. Kim, you know, remember going back to 2017, is that he actually really doesn't want to go to war. He doesn't.
1: But if he wanted to save himself from a defeat.
0: Well, I'll tell you this. It's possible. Um, I I tell the story how in late 2017, at, at the height of the tensions with North Korea, his own senior military advisors were reluctant they were hesitant to give him military options because they were afraid he might use them and, and also so concerned that they communicated to their North Korean counterparts that they didn't know what he was going to do that he's unpredictable because they wanted to reduce the chance of war you, you remember the discussions then of a bloody nose strike you know a limited military strike that would send a message uh, to North Korea no one in the Pentagon thought such a thing existed because their view was that North Korea would perceive a quote unquote limited strike as the first salvo in a decapitation attempt and then respond by raining hellfire down on Seoul, which they could you know the Intel assessments for a limited military engagement with North Korea were that tens of thousands of people would die in Seoul, tens of thousands South Koreans but american soldiers and and their families so you know his own advisors were concerned. He might take the country down that path. So I wouldn't eliminate that possibility. It's also interesting, though, on the flip side. I mean, you have him, you know, reducing troops in Afghanistan by election day because he wants to be able to say, I'm ending those endless wars.
1: You talked earlier about NATO and Trump's behavior toward NATO. If Joe Biden is elected, do you see him walking back? These foreign policy blunders that many believe Trump has made successfully.
0: Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, one of his team hasn't already you know written that speech you know you could uh, you imagine and you wouldn't have to say much right you and i could give that speech and say we stand by our, our these alliances matter to us we stand by our nato allies you know this is help keep the peace blah 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 and and that would be important to those allies and you know they would welcome them and you know that russia would take a signal from that too because russia senses weakness in, in nato based on 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 the president's own expressed hostility for it so Statements would be one thing. Then the question becomes what concrete moves does does a new president make? Does he reverse, for instance, Trump's withdrawal of forces from, from Germany? You know, it's kind of interesting. I've been told that, that as with the Syria withdrawal, that the Pentagon is slow rolling, the, the withdrawal of troops from, from Europe, because by the way, these things take time. They take months. And we have election two and a half months time. So why start now if the next president, you can make the argument saying, you know, there's a big logistical thing. If it gets reversed come November 4th, why are we doing it now?
1: Do you think the generals are deliberately dragging feet on this?
0: Yes, I do. I do. I think, you know, some more than others. And, uh, you know, cloaked as best you can. I know that on a lot of these decisions, they don't want to do what the president has suggested to it. For instance, now, you know, set aside Syria for a second, but the the president demanding that South Korea quintuple its uh, payments for U.S. deployments there with a sort of latent threat to withdraw South Korean, U.S. troops from South Korea if they don't do it. You know, there's no one in that building that supports that decision other than the president. And then it becomes a question of which hill do they die on? You know, I had one, I quote this guy in the book, but a senior military official. It's like, what, which hill are we going to die on with each of these things, these concessions? And, you know, sometimes they, you know, they're willing to die halfway up the hill, but not all the way, you know, and other times uh, they slow roll where they can. But at the end of the day, he's the commander in chief, right? You, You can't, you can't say no.
1: What about Iran? Do you see Iran as a legitimate nuclear threat?
0: This is another one that's a a failure of Trump's policy, right, based on the simple metric of is Iran a bigger or lesser nuclear threat today than it was four years ago? And the fact is, it's a bigger threat. Its it's breakout period is shorter. It's got more highly enriched uranium. and, And its ballistic missile program hasn't been stopped either. So based on the president's own metric, it's a bigger threat. And, and here's another case where, the, the you know, there are long-term consequences of this because let's say the next president says, okay, let's get back into that nuclear agreement because it was working. What do, what do, first of all, what does Iran say? Do I believe you? Uh, what do allies say? What do Russia and China say? Do they say, well, okay, you say that, but what happens in the election in four years, you know? How, what is America's um, commitment to its treaties, you know, when you summarily, Pull yourself out of them and maybe go back in. I don't know. I mean, John Bolton says on NATO that if Trump's reelected, you know, you might just straight up pull out of NATO alliance, which would, how do you, how would you reverse that?
1: And in the meantime, we are experiencing the fall of leadership in Lebanon. And how does that figure into that whole Middle East mix?
0: Loss, another place where there's a loss of leadership from, from the U.S., and I'm not holding the U.S. up uh, as a brilliant leader before January 2017, right? I mean, you had a disastrous war in Iraq, you know, decades of a failure to achieve a peace agreement. But you're further not away from, not closer to a peace agreement in the Middle East. You know, remember Jared Kushner's grand plan. Um, you have Russia, which with a greater presence there than they've had since the Soviet days, uh, with a naval and, and military bases in Syria. A greater role in that conflict, and the U.S. reducing its footprint in Iraq and, and Afghanistan, it's less of a player. And you see others taking advantage of that, right? I mean, Saudi Arabia, supposedly our great friend, right? Um, you know, they're finding ways to do exactly what they want there. Turkey, you know, NATO ally, buying weapons from the, the, the Russians, uh, uh, you know, missile systems from the from the Russians.
1: What a mess. Yeah. What
0: a mess. It is a mess. It is. And by hard measures, you know, the last chapter of this book, I do, I, you know, I approach this book with an open mind. You know, I made, made a point of speaking only to Trump folks and, and people who either criticize them after leaving office or, or are still loyalists. But then at the end, I say, OK, let's just look at each of these uh, spheres, North Korea, Syria, China, Russia, where we started, where we are four years later, just by any hard measure. Number of nukes, you know, is is Russia more or less aggressive militarily? They're more so, you know, by those simple metrics. We've lost, uh, if not in all of those spheres, in most of those spheres, we've lost ground.
1: What about the extent of his lying, both about domestic policy as well as foreign policy? I mean, no president we've had has been pure, but he seems to have gone way over the top in terms of his untruth.
0: It's an enormous loss of soft power. You know, he's not the first American politician to lie, but to lie without shame and to such a degree about so many things beyond policy positions, just facts, you know, the number of people dying from this disease lie about history, you know. How do you gain that back? I mean, these are the things, you know, reputation personally or nationally, difficult to build, easy to lose, right? How does the U.S. gain that back? I I don't know. We'll watch. Um, but the lies, because then they become, he represents us, right? It's not just the lies of the man, but it's a li- the lies of the country.
1: But don't you think a number of foreign leaders exempt much of the American public and attribute the lies specifically to him and his administration?
0: I do think so. I think if you and I travel there, they're not going to automatically assume we all are liars. But it gets to our country's credibility, right? Because if we you know, you speak about an alliance, if the president's saying we're not committed to the alliance in his words and actions, regardless of what you and I think, or even, you know, the generals on the ground there, the president speaks for the nation in terms of how it's going to follow through. You know, even, you know, it's interesting to see folks take advantage of his lies, right? You know, to, to watch dictators attack inconvenient dissent as fake news, too. You know, they weaponize his own approach. And, you know, we're all feeding into this kind of very Soviet style, there's no true anything, right? If there's doubt about everything, then there's there's no certainty about anything. It's a I mean it, it sounds far fetched, but I feel like we experience that every day.
1: Jim, you don't sound very optimistic.
0: I'm heartbroken to some degree about a lot of this as a I love my country, you know, I'm idealistic. I've got three kids, you know, who I want to raise happily in this world and have something of the life and lifestyle I've been able to have in this country. Um, I remain an optimist at heart, but I also am a realist. And what I worry is not that Trump won't go away, because he will, you know, he will. People come and go. Um, But that our country has lost some of its ability to solve big problems, you know, Um, and to approach this in a way where everybody's in it together. There's such a siloization. I hope we find a way around that. I hope. Uh, But but some days are tougher than others.
1: Jim, thank you.
0: Thank you. It's always great to talk to you. Really, really do enjoy it.
1: And that's all for today. Thanks to those of you who've reached out to let me know what you'd like me to cover during this very difficult time. Please continue to let us know what's on your mind. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email, drpodcast at wamu.org. Our theme music is composed by Jim Brunberg and Finn Landsberg of Wonderly. The show is produced by Rebecca Kaufman, Alison Brody, and Sandra Baker. Our engineer today is Natalie Urid-Libker. Thanks for listening, all. And please don't forget to wear those masks. I'm Diane Rehm.